If you're a small business owner looking to grow or expand your business, check out OnDeck Business Loans. OnDeck offers business loans online from $5,000 to $500,000, and their simple application process only takes 10 minutes. Unlike banks, they'll give you a decision quickly, and funding is as fast as one day. Get a free consultation with an OnDeck loan advisor. Visit OnDeck.com podcast. This is the Customer Equity Accelerator. If you are a marketing executive who wants to deliver bottom line impact by identifying and connecting with revenue generating customers, then this is the show for you. I'm your host, Allison Hartsoe, CEO of Ambition Data. Each week, I bring you the leaders behind the customer-centric revolution who share their expert advice. Are you ready to accelerate? Then let's go. Welcome, everyone. Today's show is about a topic I know that you have been thinking about, but you maybe have never thought about how to solve for. It is how to secure budget for your data science projects. And to help me discuss this topic is Jose Murillo. Jose is the CAO at Benorte Bank, which is the second largest financial group in Mexico, an incredibly important position because under Jose's leadership, this bank has moved moved forward and has recently leapfrogged Citibank and Santander down in the Mexican market. So, Jose, thank you for joining us on the show today. Hi, Allison. It is great to be back on your show. Thank you for having me. Can you tell us a little bit about your background, uh, your role as the chief analytics officer, and then maybe how you uh, discovered this topic? Sure. Uh, let me tell you a little bit about me. Uh, the analytics team, which I lead at Panorte since its inception, um, has been very successful. Uh, we have yielded $1.8 billion in CLV during our four-year tenure from a data science project. And uh, notice that I'm talking about CLV, a metric that your audience is well acquainted with. <laughs> I guess in tandem with the, with the value that we have created, the size of the team increased. And the reason that I'm drawn to this particular project on how to gain the budget that you need to carry forward your projects, your data science projects, simply because I think that's the foundational layer on which you can build a successful analytics slash data science practice. So that's interesting that you say that budget or the ability to get budget is the foundational layer, not uh, putting in certain technologies or hiring people with a really interesting mix of skills. Yes. And I guess that's the first piece that you have to get is to have the budget. And it's like Economics 101. If uh, the audience recalls their first course on economics, there's production possibility frontier. uh, It determines how much output you can produce. And it depends on the inputs that you have. And the inputs depend largely on the budget that you're getting. And even further importance for every person is that their own productivity, which is the basis of their having a successful career, it hinges on how much capital, additional labor there is, and the technology they have access to. So when I'm thinking about budget, that determines how much people you can recruit in your team, the quality of the people that you're getting, the technology that you have access to, 
And that's largely the first determinant of how far you're getting to gain of analytics, data science, or for any project that you want to think about. You know, that's fascinating because in many cases, we assume the organization either wants to do the program or they don't. I come up with a great idea. I, I bring my great idea to management. They should bless it and let me run with this idea. What's wrong with that picture? Yeah, I guess that's an excellent point. It's, uh, usually you would think that it should be self-evident, but it, it's not. And uh, it happens that there are a lot of uh, competing projects that require resources. And I think that's something that we found when we talked to some of our colleagues at conferences, that they are really struggling to get the necessary budget. They are really smart guys who are having this hard time in securing the funds to have their ideas flourish. And that's something that it's not that uncommon. At the end of the day, probably it's because within our industry, people are a little bit shyer, or it's even very difficult for the C-suite to envision or the budget holder to envision what is the capacity of a data science unit of yielding. And that's something that it's very hard. And also something that it's not that common is that the way that data science units or analytics units are built are largely made as cost centers instead of profit centers. And in some sense, it is not expected for the data science to put some skin in the game to advance their project. So it's something that it's expected to be uh, largely subsidized by the corporation. And that's really non-sustainable in the long term. So you've said a bunch of things there that are really interesting. So first, I want to pick up on what you just said, which is the data science centers are seen as cost centers, not profit centers. What does it mean to be a profit center instead of a cost center? How does that change the internal thinking? I guess the, the way that, that it changes is that you're going to grant budget, but you're expecting that the budget recipient is going to produce X times the budget that he's receiving. The way that most of the businesses are operated and the way that it changes, it's also that you're expecting that this data science unit contributes to the bottom line, that it has a measurable ROI and that it's accountable for yielding those results. You know, and I remember at the Chief Analytics Officer Conference in Miami, and I'll link to this in show notes, they exactly talked about this issue, about creating measurable ROI. And the folks were struggling because what they had basically done was install technology, and they were just scratching the surface of what it meant, and they were being asked to to justify the technology expenditure. Is the process of asking for a data science budget, is that not about justifying the technology, but as you're alluding to getting to the what can it contribute to the bottom line? Are we saying that that concept has to be sold in so that the tech isn't seen as a panacea? You know, suddenly I'm going to get everything I need from the tech. And instead, you're pre-selling your management on, I need this to get to the bigger picture. Yeah, you're right. At the end of the day, you have most of the people that are going to grant the budget are not necessarily well-versed on the technologies or the experts that the new unit wants to hire. Probably there are profiles of people or technologies that haven't been purchased before at the company. 
and suddenly you are going to ask to hire a guy who is an artificial intelligence expert who can build random forest models and it's very difficult to understand for those people if it makes sense and it suddenly it might seem very expensive and perhaps they are used to, well, if I hire these many more uh, call center executives or salesmen, then I can convert this much uh, into sales and profit and it's something that I've, I have experience in how to process that. But it's very difficult to understand how much profitable is going to be the company if I buy this technology or if I hire this type of people within the company. So it's very much within the, the responsibility of the budget seeker to, to be clear and explain what's the potential. And sometimes the budget seeker, it's not even really aware of how much it can make. So it's uh, also, it, 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 it can be difficult in that sense. Obviously, you've been successful at communicating the internally. Do you have some examples or ways that you were successful at trying to get across these early data science ideas? And this was a couple years back when you started the programs at your bank, right? So this was even before people might have had the understanding that they do today. Yeah, and I can share some uh, successes and some blunders also. Initially, I, uh, I guess it came like a blessing in, in disguise. And it was something that I really, to tell you the truth, it was not something that I planned initially when we built our analytics team in the sense that uh, we were going to be held accountable in yielding 10 times our cost after the first year of operation. And this is what you mean by skin in the game? You know, they, they put a number on you? Yeah, that's what I mean, skin in the game. And it's and it's literal in the sense that it's your personal wealth that it's at risk or your job security in the worst case. At, at the end of the day, if not, it's going to be very asymmetric. The company is going to put at risk a certain amount of resources. And typically what it happens is that, well, if you're thought as a cost center, it's something that it's just uh, thrown into the well, uh, the money without any expectation of what is going to be produced. But when you're built as a profit center, you're thought that, uh, yeah, that money is going to yield a certain return that it's expected and you're going to be held accountable by it. And, and so you're willing to uh, put your neck in the line. So, yeah, you should be uh, pretty sure on, uh, that if you are asking for a certain amount of resources that you're going to put them at good use. And be willing to risk failure, which is even harder. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be harder. So going back to the examples that you asked me, data science analytics was a novel concept within the company. And, and it's not that it's Banorte, it's a really large financial group. We have 27,000 employees. And it's not like everybody's like waiting like to say, well, we're, now the analytics team is coming and uh, that's what we've just been waiting for. And so you have to see who are going to be the early adopters the guys who are going to be your champions, whom you have, you can work with, the ones that you are going to face less headwinds in transforming the, the business. In our case, it was the credit card business unit, which uh, it's actually now the most profitable projects that we conduct are with, still with the credit card unit, since those are the guys we started with. And the first project that we undertook that brought us a lot of credibility was 
past abatement project, which the first year it contributed to the credit card unit to increase their profits from the previous year on by 25%. And when you pick the project, you have to be very careful on which project you, you pick because, you know, cost projects are not really that difficult. You don't have to build a CLV. It's something perfectly easy to measure and to prove. You don't have to estimate a CLV. It's something that can be quickly executed. In some sense, they can be like the low-hanging fruits. When you say a cost abatement project, are you really talking about optimization, the way we might think about it in the digital space? Yeah, that's it. It's optimization. It's a cost optimization uh, project. And it still has a lot of challenges because basically you are going to tell there are different stakeholders within the organization that have conducted the way they were measuring costs before for a bunch of years. And suddenly there's a new novel way of doing it. So there's still a lot of convincing to do. And you have the idea and then you have to you know, sell the project. But when it's done you're not going to have many discussions if it's, you know, if it's really worth what you're saying it's worth because it's in the the bookkeeping records. So, yeah, you can prove that very cleanly. In contrast, when you move to do like income revenue generating projects and you're acquiring a a customer and that's something that you've uh, discussed profusely in your podcast, you have to estimate the value of, you know, how much does that customer it's worth? how much it's contributing to the customer equity of the firm. And let me tell you a blunder because the success might seem easy, but I think it's also very easy to to mess it up. And uh, for example, lately these years, I've kept the exponential contribution of data science largely by doing experimentation projects. But the first experiments that we've uh, ran, they took a lot of time to get them done. And probably it has to do that I really didn't pick the right projects. And in that sense, I'd like to stress the point that pick the projects where you face uh, less headwinds. Mm. So even though you might have a great idea, if you don't have the, let's call it political wingman, you know, if you don't have that helpful person on the other side that really wants the information, that's planning on using it, that's pulling as much as you're pushing, that that can make for even the best project uh, that can set it up for failure. You're right. And uh, I think that you need to build your reputation first before you tackle more uh, challenging issues. And that will create a very good dynamic. And I guess the most difficult part is to get the seed capital. After you get the seed capital and then you start delivering uh, an ROI, then the ensuing budget increases are much easier to get. And it's much easier also to have a say on budgets that are complementary to your own success, like IT investments or human capital investments. Are you seeing that as your projects are more successful, the way your organization works together and getting project for a a complementary area, that it starts to be less about my division and your division, and it starts to be more purpose-driven. You know, here's something big that we're all going after, and here's what I need and what you need. I think you put it correctly. There's much more cohesion within the different stakeholders. And at the end, the people have the same common goal. The difference is in the way that we think about it, it's in how we're going to get there. 
And if you've proven to be successful before and the people are used to the way that the projects are explained with data and they believe in the data that you are showing and the way that it's processed, you don't have that, that your colleagues in different departments to understand what's a neural network. They only need to believe that you are doing it correctly and soundly and that it has in the past proven to be successful to be willing to risk their time in going into new projects. And that's right. Initially, it was more difficult, and now the projects are carried out with less friction and the productivity of the company benefit from that tremendously. So this sounds like a skill that people need in order to get budget. It's not just targeting the right places where you might not have as much of a headwind to get your project off the ground. And it's not just targeting something that might be a little easier, like a cost abatement project versus an income generating project. But it's also the ability to have people, would you say, maybe see the big picture or or bind to a bigger idea? Yes, and I think people will need to hone their own skill in how they are selling the project, in how they are getting the capital. And it, it might seem that in a large corporation, probably people are not that used to be able or need to have this entrepreneurial skill in, in getting people on board on your projects because it's supposed to be given. But at the end, it's your own career that it's on the line. And if you secure the budget, you're more likely to be successful, to be much more productive, and to have a more rewarding career through your time. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I like what you said about the fact that in a large corporation, you might be more expecting someone to bless your idea and hand you things on a silver platter. But what you're saying is you need to bring an entrepreneurial mindset in order to secure data budget. You need to paint a bigger picture, a bigger purpose, and then not focus on what does AI do and the mechanics of machine learning, but focus instead on, isn't this a great way to please our customers? Or what if we solved this process or this problem and get people thinking about the bigger picture? Yeah, that's right. And especially for people who want to advance their careers and to have larger impact within their organization. Do you look for entrepreneurs on your team to help do this? I guess the team, in some sense, you don't need that everybody's an entrepreneur. It's uh, the story about the unicorn, but that you need at least to have a, someone with these salesman skills within the group. In our case, it happens that I actually found that I had that particular skill that came to be useful. That you personally had the skill. Yeah. And let me tell you a little bit more. I, I guess something that I didn't tell at the beginning when you asked about my background, I funded my way through college by selling houses and being a realtor. And I was pretty successful at it. When I was at college, I used to sell like about, uh, at my peak, about four houses per weekend. Wow. That's a lot. So yes, after doing a PhD, I thought that I would never use that skill, but it, it turned out to be pretty handy. <laughs> no kidding. And do you find that some of your same sales strategies, you know, perhaps, you know, getting people to agree or getting them to nod heads, are there certain things that you look for in the process? Going back to the time that I used to sell houses, the customers really liked in really explaining very well what was the product that I was selling. And I mean, something similar when you're doing uh, a data science project, you have to be able to explain in, 
in clear in a clear fashion what you're aiming for and in a language that your colleagues can relate to and that they can understand. And I'm going back to what you said earlier. They don't really need to understand all the dynamics of internal methodological issues on the models that you're building, but it has to make sense to them. And it has to be something that they can believe in, that it's credible, the the story that you're telling. Mm -hmm. Something they can absolutely believe in. And I wanted to mention, I should have mentioned this earlier, you've been on our show before, and I will be linking to the earlier episode where we talked about how you got tremendous value within the organization and the different stories that were related to that. But in this case, when you're looking for ways to communicate how to get people to believe in a certain idea. Is there another example where you want to call out how you were able to not just get the seed capital, but get everybody, get their hearts on board in a way? Yeah, I I think the way that it has worked out is to have something that we've done with almost all our projects. It's identify all the stakeholders that are necessary within the early on the discussion Because if you forget one of those, it's going to be, instead of a supporter or an ally, it might end up being a detractor in a later stage if he was not considered. So what we do is that we are very careful on who are the different stakeholders that need to be in a discussion. Do you overplan? Like if there's a person who might be on the line between, yeah, they're kind of a stakeholder, they're kind of not, do you include them anyway? We include them. It's the more the merrier. Initially, it seems that it's going to be a very large investment, but then things turn out to be much smoother. For example, now we are one of the very recent projects that we're working on. It's uh, based on the results that we've gotten from our experimentation, from studies that we've done in behavioral analytics and artificial intelligence on the communication on uh, with our customers. We are refining the way that we are communicating to our customers through different channels, different products. And as you can imagine, for every product, there are a bunch of stakeholders. It's product segment, channels, uh, customer experience, marketing. And the way that it has worked is that we are holding every day, we're seeing one uh, product at a time that we're talking about on the communication and initially took a lot of investment in understanding how we wanted to communicate, how we wanted to standardize on how we were going to build these champions upon which later on we would put challengers to perfect the communication. And initially the meetings were a little bit longer, but later on everybody agrees on different things. Everybody helps and ends up owning the project. So that's, I guess, uh, an important thing also in having all the different stakeholders. It's that everybody's involved and so everybody has ownership on the project. And now that this is an exercise that we've been doing for the past uh, three weeks, and now it's a very expedited process and we've reached a different agreement and everybody knows it's going to be even harder to reverse to our old communication ways. Huh. Now, I love that example. It is clear, but I also wonder especially in the data science world, there are people who are not natural extroverts. And I wonder how you bring those people along too when they're not natural communicators, they're sitting on the edge of the table, they're not contributing to the process. How do you bring those people in? That's an excellent question. And let me get back to this example. 
the way that we started the discussion during the first week, we had some uh, internal mock-ups on which we tried and the different people asked. And because the, the large meeting, is, you know, there are a bunch of stakeholders, there are a lot of, a lot of people, but within a smaller group, and, and even asking them to bring up the issue when the real meeting was going to be held up. And we did that for about a week. And the fact that when we were conducting, even more extrovert people are, are not necessarily that comfortable in willing to risk an opinion when you're facing, you know, the PhDs and uh, an expert on uh, behavioral economics and an expert on such and such and an expert on product. And people might be shy and they might have really good ideas. And what I found is that having like five people agreed upon why they would raise up, up an issue and asking a more uh, confined group, it fostered discussion. And I saw people from not only my division, but from other divisions pitching up really great ideas on what was missing in that communication and people who had experience on the front line and uh, what was really missing. And it really fostered a very good collaborative exercise. It, it was not something that happened spontaneously, but it was something that happened more like, you know, it was practiced in some sense. Am I hearing you right in that you used the smaller meetings both before and after the larger meetings to get that collaboration? Just before. It's before it's a smaller group and set up a group of 15 people, a group of five people, and which was alternating the people that were attending then and having, you know, in a more reserved group that they were willing to risk their ideas. And the people really had great ideas and asked them, so would you be willing to put it forward in the, in the big mid meeting? And they did. And for other people seeing like, well, it's not only Jose who is telling us the, the word, it's everybody who's pitching in and it's more free and people were more willing to venture their ideas. And certainly we ended up with a much more robust product at the end. Oh, that's, that's fantastic. I have seen this in other entrepreneurial companies that were very successful, this ability to get everyone on board. And the phrase to get everyone on board doesn't really capture what this is about. This is really about listening or or leveraging the social intelligence within your company to make the best ask for budget that you can make. Yeah. And now that I'm listening to you, something that also that I'm thinking is within the larger group, we've done it to foster these, you know, people to express their ideas it's really to keeping it positive. We are very agnostic on what's a good idea or not. And what you want is to bend hypos, the highest paid person opinion. <laughs> uh, we really don't like that because at the end, any idea can be a good idea. And in some sense, what we don't do is to say, well, that's a very bad idea. We're not going to do anything about it. Even if the group thinks that it's something that we might test. Well, we don't know what we will do is we'll build a champion and then we can test with a challenger if, if our idea makes sense and it leads to higher conversions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I love it. So we try to keep it like a very positive exercise that nobody's really uh, shunned from the exercise. I think that's difficult to do and congratulations for being able to do that. And I'm sure that does contribute to your success. Are there any other examples that you want to share? I guess those two come to my mind as I said, well, let, let me tell you one thing, which I didn't got the budget that I thought and probably made sense to not get the budget. At some point, 
I thought that it would be useful to have some analytics seminars for my colleagues in different departments to be more well-versed on, on analytics and data science, and that probably that would help to accelerate the process. The people from HR told me, well, we are not really sure that people are going to get really excited about this. And when I talked to the people, they said, well, you know, we feel pretty comfortable with you doing the analytics, and why do we need to, <laughs> to learn this? And in some sense, I should have scouted before for the people within other departments if they were interested in such a thing instead of me planning it from, uh, you know, my office, what should be helpful for building their human capital. I love that example. And it makes me laugh because I was presenting analytics one day and the person in the audience said, wow, Allison, I always think about analytics like accounting. And I was just horrified because if you love the subject of <laughs> analytics, you're like, how could that possibly be seen as accounting so boring and dry? And yet, it, you know, if it's not your area of interest, anything outside of that is boring and dry. So, um, yeah, so I, I hear you on this one. It's, uh, it's definitely the uh, what I've heard in the in the past. <laughs> So let's say that I want to get budget for my company. Uh, can you give us a sense of first, second, third, what should I do? Where should I start? We've, we've talked about a lot of different pieces in this conversation. I think there are five issues that you would like to have in your mind. The first one is I'm sure that you will have you know, a set of transformative ideas. Select the one that the least uh, headwind pick the idea that it'd be more likely to be successful and that it's not going to be that surprising for your colleagues or, or the different stakeholders that you need to push forward. So that'd be the first one, pick the right project. The second one is build a business case that it's very solid with the data that it's credible, that it's believable. After you've done that, the third thing that you need is convince yourself that, that you're really willing to put your neck on the line for it. You're going to ask your company to spend money on that project, so you have to be willing to risk something personally. So you, you have to be really convinced yourself. You're the one that has to be convinced first. The fourth step that I would do is to understand very well who the budget gatekeeper is and state your case. And if you don't get hurt the first time, get into a loop in there and probably you are not communicating correctly, hone your sales pitch, but address it to the right person. Is it usually one person? Are there multiple budget gatekeepers or is there really just one person you're getting to? That's an excellent question. In my case, there were multiple, uh, you know, there was my uh, boss, he was uh, sponsoring the project. But at the end of the day, we needed to go to a committee and get the budget approved. So yes, I needed to have Mr. Arana, who is the chief operating officer on board. He was very excited with the idea, but his peers within the firm needed to say yes. The board of directors needed to approve the position of a, of a new chief analytics officer. So yes, there are usually many stakeholders, especially at large corporations. And that's an excellent point because the way that you're communicating to a person that it's well-versed and, and advanced in analytics and data science, you can be much more succinct, but the pitch probably needs to be adjusted for the audience that you're talking to. 
And I guess the last part is that you need to measure what you've done. You need to measure the, the ROI and be willing to be held accountable for it and for good or for worse. It's uh, hopefully for good. Uh, and if anyone wants to hear the fantastic ROI results, again, our first podcast episode talks about those ROI uh, examples. And I think everybody will love that. So I will link to that again in the show notes. Now, Jose, these are fantastic tips, and I know people will get a lot of value out of understanding how to secure budget for the things that they can envision for their companies. If they have questions or they want to reach you, what's the best way to get in touch? I guess through LinkedIn, they can contact me. Right. And is your LinkedIn profile under your first and last name, just Jose Murillo? Will that get them to you? Yeah, it's Jose Murillo at Banorte. It would be very easy to find me. To my uh, surprise, there are plenty of Jose Murillo around the world. <laughs> you know, I'm always amazed. I have a fairly unique name, but there is actually one other Alison Hartso out there. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I know. I know. The ways we're connected today. <laughs> At least one that I know of. Maybe there's more. <laughs> so... Jose, thank you so much for all of your insights and, and the discussion. Uh, as always, we're going to include the links that I've mentioned on ambitiondata.com slash podcast. And I, I always enjoy our conversations because they lead me in directions that I don't often think about, you know, kind of getting out of the box of analytics into more the human side or what does it take to actually make these, these dreams come true. So thank you for leading the charge and figuring this out for us. Thank you for having me. I really admire your work. And uh, I think the podcast is becoming a, a really good encyclopedia on uh, analytics uh, best practices. Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate that. Remember, everyone, when you use your data effectively, just like Jose, you can build customer equity. This is not magic. It is a very specific journey that you can follow to get results. Thank you for joining today's show. This is your host, Allison Hartzell, and I have two gifts for you. First, I've written a guide for the customer-centric CMO, which contains some of the best ideas from this podcast, and you can receive it right now. Simply text Ambition Data, one word, to 31996. And after you get that white paper, you'll have the option for the second gift, which is to receive the signal. Once a month, I put together a list of three to five things I've seen that represent customer equity signal, not noise. And believe me, there's a lot of noise out there. Things I include could be smart tools I've run across, articles I've shared, cool statistics, or people and companies I think are making amazing progress as they build customer equity. I hope you enjoy the CMO guide and the signal. See you next week on the Customer Equity Accelerator.